Okay, hello everybody, welcome to Ancient Modern. Tonight I'm honored to have uh, Professor Paul Carlage with us. Uh, Paul was a Leventus Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge. He's now Emeritus Professor. And he's written very many books. Um, and the most recent one is actually about Thebes. Looking at the list here on Wikipedia, the first one was Aristophanes and his Theatre of the Absurd. And in between, there are several volumes about Sparta. Um, in fact, so many that I think I, I could say that Paul is probably the world's leading expert on ancient Sparta. And I also noticed, Paul, that you, um, you have in your email the sign-off, uh, Citizen of Sparta. So how did you get that? Did you have to go through the aggregate or, or bring wheat to, to a Sicilian or something? <laughs> I didn't have to do either of those, James. Thanks for having me on your uh, program, your podcast, your video. Uh, I am an honorary citizen, which is Epizimos Dimotis in Greek of Sparta, and it's not terribly widely <laughs> disseminated. Another one is Steve Pressfield. You may have heard of him, novelist, Gates of Fire. And it's a combination of um, being well known in the local town because I've actually lived there on and off for, for over a year. I started my graduate work in 1969-70 and then I pitched up in Sparta in the, I think it was late 1970. And I did my research on archaeology on the early, as we call it, uh, historical period, the archaic period, circa 800 to 500 BC. And then through the British school, which then maintains, of course, very good contacts with the local ephoria, which is the local superintendency, plus with the um, relatively small local bureaucracy, the mayor and uh, his office, which changes, of course, periodically. I was proposed and accepted by the local Vimos. Sparta is today a Vimos, uh, as if it were one of the 140 deems of ancient Athens. But of course, that's a completely different show. We'll come on, I think, to Athens later on. So I was very fortunate because uh, I wasn't just given it, as it were, and, you know, presented with a number of goodies and what have you. But we had a massive conference on the one side, all living and still um, sort of compost British archaeologists who'd worked through the British school at Sparta or in Laconia, right back to prehistory and going through to Byzantine period. And on the other hand, all Greek archaeologists, Greek Greeks, who had either been in the officialdom in Sparta, for example, my effort, such a lovely man, Jorgos Steinhauer. His name means hewer of stone in German because his ultimate ancestor came over with Otto in the 1830s, the first king of modern Greece from Bavaria. And other archaeologists, um, extremely distinguished, many of them, and actually there was such a long string, I found the conference a little bit wearing. So we had, first of all, my lead-off talk, then a massive dinner, very Laconian, uh, much too big, much too heavy, but nevertheless very generous. And then the following couple of days were these series of papers, which were published. So, I mean, something really positive came out of me, little me, getting the honorary citizenship of Sparta. Well, I hope the meal was black broth and that they made you run the Spartathlon <laughs> beforehand. I'm sorry to say neither was the case, but what amused me was instead of serving, as it were, 
here's your first course, then we'll take away your plate, here's your second course, and so on. They shoved everything, uh, first, main, and dessert, on the same plate, which, of course, eased the serving, and it was all outdoors. It was actually a bit like taking part in a festival of the Carnaia, the ancient Spartan, one of the main festivals of Apollo that uh, allegedly went on for nine days, and part of it was living in tents, I mean, a sort of imaginary recreation of an earlier phase of Spartan history and then having a good old um, you know Beano we say or knees up what the Greeks today would call a glendy. All right so having been to this conference maybe you can catch me up a bit because I, I teach a little bit about Sparta in, in a first year introduction to the Greek history course every year and what I usually try and do is sort of contrast the the image of Sparta you know this very austere place that we get from films like the 300 and uh, Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus, and, uh, and contrast that with, you know, what historians have told us in more recent times. I mean, I'm thinking of Stephen Hawkinson, uh, who really kind of took an axe to the whole Spartan mirage, this image that had been built up of Sparta as this incredibly manly, austere place. Now, um, what I want to get caught up on is really, is it, 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 the mirage isn't completely false, right? So it, it is still true that Sparta was a little bit strange and a little bit more militaristic than the Greek polis, right? Or was it just like any, any ordinary city-state in Greece? Yeah, it's one of those questions, James. Where do I start? As yeah. Steve, Steve is a sort of former student of mine, i.e. his doctoral supervisor was Moses Finley. And Moses um, didn't spend much time on Sparta, but he did write one very... I think, seminal article back in the 60s, which is multiply uh, reproduced. And what he did was to say that the aspect of the um, myth, if you like, the mirage, the story which pushes Spartan peculiarity way back when into the dim and dis... No, no, that was wrong. Actually, Sparta transformed itself into what became the mythical Sparta of the 5th century BC and later, only in the 6th century BC. So relatively recent. Well, we can argue about that. But your question is more not chronographic, but it's actually much more, <coughs> excuse me, systematic. And broadly speaking, I, I would single out, um, I suppose, if I was to think what's particularly peculiar, and that is not just odd, but unique to Sparta. Start off with the helots. Now, hylotai in Greek means captives. Imagine that you are in a city which, among its many other virtues, proclaims equality and freedom as its two cardinal virtues, for which Spartans are brought up not just to live but to die. And so you get the terrific um, emphasis, let's put it no stronger than that, on military matters and indeed prowess in warfare and indeed signal examples of exceptional proficiency and bravery in warfare and so on and so on. You've got all that side, the, as it were, the military side. What then is um, actually the, the reality? This is where Steve says, look, hang on, guys. In fact, the Spartans occasionally lost. They weren't so terrific. They didn't spend so much time on war. To which I would reply this. Why, if you don't worry about the helots, which is what I think the Spartans principally worried about, why would you devise a communal, comprehensive, 
educational system, which takes a young boy away from his natal family, and he must know that this is coming. This is all part of the what the Greeks called nomos, its convention and law, at the age of seven, and keep him there and organize him in, now these words are not mine, they're ancient Greek words, herds, agelai, another word for uh, herds that refers to cattle, buai, and keep him there until the age of um, about 18, 17, 18. And that system of education, whatever about the details, scholars differ on how far they think it was total, i.e. comprehensive, no private education whatsoever. Others um, buy the entire picture, something. No, no, there was quite a lot of private enterprise as well. Both Aristotle and Plato, neither of whom were Spartans, neither of whom were total admirers of everything Spartan. In fact, Aristotle was quite severely critical of Sparta's way of doing education and society. Um, They stated just unambiguously, Sparta was unique in the entire world of Hellas. That is, out of what, about a thousand cities in having a public compulsory, comprehensive educational cycle for one half of the citizen population, the males. Plus, now, this is where we get into problems, you're quite right. The most evidence we have comes from much, much later than the high, um, high, what should we say, the heyday of Sparta, I suppose, um, 6th, 5th, 4th centuries BC. Evidence mainly clusters around Plutarch in the 1st century to 2nd century AD. He read voraciously everything before, but that tradition about Sparta was, if you like, tainted, and you've put your finger on it already. It's a mirage in the sense that it maybe has quite a lot of truth in it or it maybe has very little truth in it but it has an awful lot of imagination in it a lot of fictional fantasy um, of what the Spartans would like other people to believe now other people i.e. other Greeks divide it very sharply and I often use as an analogy the Soviet Union in the 30s 1930s you either hated it or you loved it. So in other words, you either wished your society was more like you imagine Sparta to be, or actually, thank goodness, we are not anything like the Spartans. And so the writers who survive, they're not Spartans. Spartans didn't go in for writing about themselves much, one or two, but not much. Most writers, therefore, are non and actually most are influenced by a kind of Athenian model. So either very democratic or at any rate very cultured, very high cultured in art, music, theatre, poetry, etc. You know, so the Spartans come out of this um, either terrifically positively, but for values you and I might not admire very much: tough, disciplined, hierarchical, military fiercely nasty to their subject working class. And that's to go back to where I started, the helots. They're Greek, they were conquered, they were subjugated, they were subjected legally, they're unfree. So we're in a society which says for us, the citizens, we're free and equal, but sorry, you guys, helots, you're Greeks, but you're going to have to serve us hand and foot.
So in some ways, all that military training and prowess is turned not outwards towards sort of conquest and adventure, it's turned inwards. So Sparta emerges more as a police state, really, than, a, than an adventurous military state. The question there, and this is all very fraught, um, police state brings up to mind, obviously, Stalinist Russia or other horrendously right-wing, conservative, uh, <laughs> viciously uh, anti-liberal societies. Well, liberalism in the ancient world isn't what you and I would uh, take it to be. So if you think of Athens and you think very positively of Athens, many Athenians owned slaves. The state of Athens owned public slaves. This is not a free and equal paradise. It's not a liberal state. But in the um, 50s, really, the Cold War period, there's a debate amongst Spartan historians, Sparta watchers. Is the word totalitarian apt? In other words, does it capture the essence of the atmosphere of living in Sparta or being a Spartan citizen and running the Spartan state? And it was thought, I think rightly, that because the means of control were by no means as, you know, obviously technically, technologically available then, that for various reasons there were more sort of gaps or more little chinks of light, and therefore it's not quite fair to call it totalitarian. But one of the best historians then, Victor Ehrenberg, used the word authoritarian. Now, he was German. He suffered as a Jew from Nazi totalitarianism. He knew what he was talking about. And I think probably I would use the word authoritarian. And that's because the magistrates of Sparta, the officialdom, the hierarchy, people in power, whether permanently by birth or temporarily by election, did have exceptional authority. And there was no countervailing popular, especially legal means of control of the officials in the way that there was in democratic Athens. So in that sense, yes, I think Sparta was within itself as a self-governing entity, authoritarian. Right. Although, I mean, the efforts keep a watch on the kings, don't they? And the, the citizen assembly seems to have a certain amount of leeway. Yeah, quite. I mean, these are technical points, but you put your finger on three of the elements of the governing hierarchy. There is a fourth, which is the Gerousia or Senate. So Sparta very oddly has two royal houses, hereditary monarchs, and the succession is um, theoretically from father to son, i.e. eldest son. It's a classic um, anthropologically I would say regressive mode of governance but we in this country I mean in the UK we have a very funny sort of mixed constitution with a crown and our crown until very recently it always had to go to the eldest son now it could be the eldest daughter but um, that's uh, only a marginal improvement in my opinion I'm not a monarchist I'm not a royalist but the Spartans were distinctly odd I mean one other Greek city is said to have had more than one king but Otherwise, two kings is weird. Yes, you mentioned the assembly. Well, what sort of an assembly would it that would it be? In other words, how independent or how um, 
what should we say, independent-minded would an ordinary Spartan be? And then, um, yes, the ephors represent in the sense that they have to be chosen from ordinary Spartans, and they're chosen by election, but the election mode, which is described in detail by Plutarch, however he got to hear it, we don't know, but anyway, Aristotle called it childish because it was so easily manipulable, so, as it were, un uh, transparent that um, it didn't qualify as democratic so they had elections and they had popular elections but they were a kind of travesty or a kind of caricature compared with the way in which the Athenians did it so you've got the ephors you're right performing on behalf of the people some sort of check on the kings where then does this funny institution of the old men the senate well they really were old they had to be 60 plus well to survive to 60 in a spartan type world and a spartan type so you've got to be pretty damn tough there were 28 as it were ordinary members and I put it that way because two of the 30 members were ex officio, the two kings. Now, a king could be well under 60, but would still sit in the Gerousia. Why does this matter? Because, in my opinion, pretty much every measure that the assembly would ever get to consider had first to be pre-filtered through the Senate. So if the Senate, by a majority, decided it didn't want to put a matter to the assembly that was it the assembly just simply wouldn't have anything to do go to athens there's a stated assembly agenda every month and then uh, in later times even more frequently than that so the people know that their representatives i.e the council who are chosen by lot not by election by the much more random democratic mode of selection um, they know that they're going to constantly have a chance and eventually pretty much every 10 days they're going to have a chance to air some major um, matter of public concern sparta is a closed society top down kings were automatically members of the uh, gerousia and it seems that almost certainly relatives of the kings would be among the other 28 members. Great. Okay, you set us up perfectly to talk about democracy because 2016, you published this book, Democracy Alive. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, excellent book. And um, it covers you know, everything from the Greeks to the modern day into the Brexit referendum, I believe, which was happening that year. <laughs> So an easy one, an easy starting question for you is, uh, did the Greeks invent democracy? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean by calling a question easy. I, it's anything but. What do you mean by? I was educated like you at Oxford, and uh, there was something in the 60s, it may still exist in some form, called Oxford philosophy. So you're set a question, it involves the conceptual uh, matter, in, in this case, democracy. And your first question is, what do you mean by? And then the second question is, what do you mean by mean? And so um, democracy is now, I think, a far too broadly, weakly uh, defined term. But in the ancient Greek world, and the first known use of that very word is uh, Athenian in the um, 5th century BC, an Athenian source and Herodotus, the, uh, what he's called the father of history, the um, 
historian of early Greek history, 6th, 5th century, during which some of us believe Athens invented the first form of what the Greeks called demokratia. Now, it's a hyphenated word, demokratia. Demos uh, has two uh, basic meanings. One is the people as a whole, all the citizen people, everybody who is empowered to take a decision in the name of the community, the state. So the Athenians, all the Athenians, adult, male, free, legitimate, blah, blah, blah. They are the demos of the Athenians. But there's another word, uh, another uh, meaning of demos. Actually, there are more than one in Athens. It's complicated. Demos could also mean a village, a parish, or a ward, one of the um, basic local divisions into which all Athenians were uh, eventually enrolled. You had to be on the deem roll or register in order to be a full citizen of uh, Athens. But the other meaning of demos, which is um, the one that interests me, is when it means the majority of the demos in the full sense of citizen people. So demos comes to have potentially not just a descriptive sense, but also an evaluative sense, because if you don't like the fact that the demos in the sense of the majority makes a decision, if you think your view is so much superior to that of the majority, well, you're not going to be a very good Democrat, or at least you aren't if you're going to actively oppose it. And since the majority of any Greek citizen body in the ancient Greek world, 6th, 5th, 4th century BC, was what the Greeks called poor, in other words, they had to work for their living, that meant that the majority of the Athenians voting on any issue, deciding it, were typically the poor majority. Now, suppose you're rich. You don't have to work for your living. You own quite a few slaves. You're smart. You've been well-educated. You've got a family tree that stretches back generations eventually to a god or a hero. You hate the fact that ordinary, poor, ignorant, fickle, working class people, simply because there are more of them, can have the power over you. Now, this is where I use, it's a, obviously a slightly false analogy, but Democratia in the second sense of demos, mob, mass, um, comes to mean something like dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, I've used um, demos as, to start with. The other half of that word is the kratos bit, and that's unambiguous. It means power, it means might, it means strength uh, and force. So the issue is who, within a policy, within a citizen body, should exercise or does exercise the power, the weight of decision making. And so that's where democratia comes from. It's an ambiguous, ambivalent term in its ancient Greek signification. But I think your question had a further agenda, which is, did not some other cultures, communities, civilizations than 
the ancient Greeks have institutions that we today, looking back, even if they didn't have the word or anything like it, might want to classify or characterize as in some sense democracy. And there's quite a strong tendency worldwide. I mean, some push this right back to the third or even fourth millennium BC in what's today Iraq, um, ancient Sumer and uh, ancient Assyria and so on and so on. And what I have against that, I suppose, is the ultimate point that... For me, a democracy must have one particular notion, and it applies to power. And it's the fundamental notion that everybody empowered should be empowered minimally equally in this one sense, that when a vote is taken on something, whether judicial or legislative, everybody voting counts for one and no one for more than one. And actually numbering, actually counting, actually valuing in a very concrete objective sense people who are participating in the political process is something which the Greeks started. I don't think any other ancient civilization before the Greeks, that is before the 6th, 5th centuries, got there. But you may be wanting to correct me on that. No, I mean, I think I agree with you. I mean, the formulation that I've come to now is something like the Greeks are the first society uh, for which we have plentiful evidence that there was popular control of states. Um, because I think, you know, when people like Amartya Sen point to uh, India, evidence from India, or other people point to Mesopotamia, often what they're finding evidence for aren't so much concrete institutions, at least there's not, doesn't seem to be plentiful evidence for concrete institutions operating. What they seem to be finding evidence for is the idea of deliberation. And the idea of deliberation is important to modern democracy, but it can also be present in oligarchic councils uh, and even sort of royal councils. So I don't think that's uh, quite enough. Although, I mean, I think the reason I'm focusing on evidence in, in my formulation is also that we don't really know. I mean, maybe there were all these city-states in Sumer that had well-functioning democratic institutions and we, it just doesn't, we just don't have the evidence. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a bit more than that, because um, uh, I would say, say uh, you mentioned the word state, and in some senses, the ancient Greeks didn't really have much of what you and I understand by a state in the sense of governmental institutions. For example, they didn't really have government at all. They had people who held office, but they didn't have political parties. So there are various things that um, differentiate ancient Greek democracy from any post-ancient democracy or any, if you like, post-18th century or 19th century modern democracy. Nevertheless, um, what you say, well, I entirely agree with you, with your general position about deliberation, but the context within which deliberation takes place is absolutely crucial. And so before democracy, the Greeks, in, I think, invented, although, again, you could say the Phoenicians or whatever they called themselves, or possibly the Etruscans, had something somewhat comparable, the notion of a city or citizen state. And so the Greek word is polis. So first of all, you have to have an established framework with rules, with laws. And the Greeks are very they very early went to the notion of writing them down. Why did they write their laws down and publish them and set them up 
on stone or bronze in public places. Well, to symbolize, I think both, yes, you must obey the law, these are the laws, but also we are a law-giving type of society. We are a lawful sort of civilization. And so nomos, the word meaning law, has this fundamental, we talk about the rule of law today, absolutely critical, but that goes right back to the ancient Greeks. Now other states, ancient states, published laws, but these are laws about the community, and the word polis appears very early, 7th century BC actually, in Crete. That's right, yeah, I think I I put the bit about states into my formulation because um, I want to... um, rule out the kind of move that David Graeber seemed to want to make, the, the late David Graeber. Uh, he argues really, you know, we're too hung up on institutions and states. Really, democracy just emerges uh, at times when people are operating together. And I think he has ideas about, you know, hunter-gatherers were quite egalitarian. Um, but yeah, to me, there's something perhaps not unique, but I think the Greeks seem to have been the first uh, societies we have plentiful evidence for who build these really well-functioning uh, democratic institutions and very well-regulated democratic institutions. So, I mean, what you were saying before, it kind of reminded me also of the view of Egon Flagg, who, who wrote a big history of majority decision-making. And maybe he goes a bit too far in, in saying that, you know, majority decision-making, without majority decision-making, you don't have democracy at all. But certainly he has this view that majority decision-making is central to, to democracy. Yeah. Agreed. I'm agreed with you on both your points. And uh, yeah, I too have been reading um, Graeber and Wengro, and they want um, Mexico into the picture as well. I mean, way back, pre, pre-Columbian. Flax Collins, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've had a bit of an exchange. I sent, I fired off an email because I know David um, Wengro and um, sent him a, a list of objections or, or suggestions from my point of view, my Greek point. He, he didn't reply. <laughs> so uh, I'm taking his silence to mean um, assent or, de- or defeat. <laughs> okay, well, so we have, we have this uh, democratic system in Athens and other places, other city states as well. And it develops, it flourishes for a while, and that's fairly well-trodden territory. And then we get into slightly more controversial territory again when it comes to, to the decline of Greek democracy. And here I kind of agreed with the take in your book as well that you're a little bit skeptical of the claims that democracy kept on flourishing in, in the Hellenistic period. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, just to explain, and we defied our ancient history into basically three periods, archaic, or if you like, pre-classical, classical and Hellenistic. And um, archaic circa 800 to 500, because that's when Greece recovers, really, from a terrific um, economic and political collapse from, a, some would say, a dark age. At any rate, within that archaic period... Before 500, in other words, various major steps are taken of a political kind. I've alluded to a number of them. And some of us, I'm one of them, actually dates the earliest form of democracy, though it's not so called in any contemporary source, to Athens just around 500 BC. We then have a classical period. Now, 
Typically, traditionally, if you call something classical, you mean it's more fully developed or as fully developed as possible. And there's a terrible risk here because not every one of the 1,000 Greek cities or communities, not everyone is moving at the same speed. It doesn't have the same developmental trajectory back or forward. And so I'll give you what I think is the classic example sparta's archaic period that is the 800 to 500 was also its classical period because that's when it achieved its greatest fluorescence and so on anyway fifth century is very much the athenian century in the way we sometimes speak of the american century the 20th century we now speak of the Athenian century, and some people even use the word golden age. But democracy persisted well beyond the fifth century after an uh, unwanted uh, hiatus. Uh, Athens lost a major war to Sparta, and the democracy was terminated for about a year. But then it was restored, and then it was reestablished on a new basis. All sorts of slight changes, some of them, some more big. But at any rate, flourished, as you put it, for another 80-odd years, down to the 320s, when it was, if you like, forcibly terminated, assassinated by a combination of the external power of Macedon, which found Athens' um, democracy troublesome, much too difficult to keep in check, and uh, by internal forces, that is, those people I've already mentioned who hated democracy and always wanted it to be overthrown. Now they thought, my time has come, the Macedonians are going to help us introduce a form of oligarchy. Now, this is where we enter into a new period ushered in by the conquests of Alexander the Great in the Middle East over the Persian Empire. And it's called the Hellenistic because it's Hellenic, but it's also got interestingly oriental ad infusions but due to Alexander's conquering the Middle East and extending Greek culture to the east. There was a, a blowback, as it were, from the east in various ways. So the question for us historians is the word democratia persists after the end of the um, like heroic classical period when Athens uh, leads the way in being the most developed, the most active, the most flourishing democracy. Does democratia mean the same as it meant in the 4th century, in the 3rd and 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Well, this is where I, I'm rather strong. Others take a, a weaker view. They think there was some pro, not just um, prolongation, but actually, in a way, um, recrudescence. So after a dip at the end of the 4th century, some scholars think was actually a bit of an upswing of old-style direct democracy in the early 3rd century BC. I'm a little more hesitant, and I think that, at any rate, after the middle of the 3rd century, so after about 250 BC, the word democracy means fundamentally not being an oligarchy or not being a um, subject uh, of a, of course, most Greek cities are now under the control of a major regional power, and they were all kings. So not being a monarchy, democratia comes to mean republic more than it means actively energizing the majority of the citizen population on a daily basis, democracy. Now, that's just broadly speaking, my, my take on that. Yeah, and I believe that this even sort of trickles into the debate about Indian democracy because some Greek sources call um, Indian republics democratii, 
but the sources are late enough that what they might be meaning by that isn't necessarily the direct democracies of the 5th century and the 4th century BC, but the more moderate, or, or at least they, they may be referring to more moderate state forms, which of course also existed in the classical period. Right. I, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, this debate has been greatly influenced by uh, scholars like Louis Robert, you know, the idea that there's all this wonderful epigraphy in these cities, all these wonderful inscriptions that you can study, and Robert and others have done this wonderful work um, looking at them and um, sort of reconstructing the, the, the histories of the institutional histories of these city-states. But of course, just because you have a flourishing civic culture, it doesn't necessarily in itself mean that you have a democratia on the Athenian classical model. But I mean, Matt Simonson, my friend, is, you know, we had this conversation. He's emailed me, you know, long emails about, no, Rhodes actually had, you know, the good evidence that Rhodes, for example, had well-functioning democratic institutions into the third century. But um, then I have to, I have to sort of get sort of narrative and say, well, yeah, but the writing's on the wall, you know, that's just in hindsight, <laughs> you can say that. Um, but anyway, so eventually it does uh, fall away. And you have some interesting uh, quotations in your book. The use of the word democratia late on, I think, is a uh, Byzantine. John Malalas uses the word democratia, democratia, it's probably pronounced something like that by that time. He uses the yeah. word something like a riot. Yeah. Uh, and so well, this is uh, a yeah, famous case, the Nica riots in um, what was Byzantium becomes Constantinople under, of course, the late Roman Empire or if you like early Byzantium. We're in the sixth century AD CE. We're in the reign of Justinian and um, the inhabitants of Constantinople love the races. It's a bit like uh, Everton against Liverpool in soccer or Manchester United and Manchester City in the premiership. In, in soccer in, in this country. So in one case, um, it came to actual not just um, sort of disagreement and name-calling, but murder. I mean, rival groups, Blues and Greens, killed each other. And a chronicler of the period, John Malalas, you correctly mentioned him, actually does use the word, and I take that to be the ultimate degradation because whatever you think of ancient Greek fifth, fourth century classical direct rule democratia, the one thing it never descended to was mob violence. Whereas uh, now what you've, um, if you like, skimmed or skipped over, I have quite a big section in my book about was Rome, that is Republican Rome, pre-monarchical, post-monarchical Rome between the fifth and the first centuries BC, was it in any sense a democracy or were there in any sense any democratic features of its decision-making process, which an ancient Greek transported by a time machine to Rome in the second century BC would say, yes, that's just how we used to do it in the fifth, fourth centuries BC. And it's complicated, but the fundamental point is one I referred to right at the beginning, and part of my definition of a democracy, ancient Greek style, and to some extent modern, is that every citizen should be treated as counting for one and no more than one. The Romans never 
accepted that principle. Some were always, this is the Orwellian um, cynical uh, phrase, more equal than others. In other words, they practiced a group vote and the groups were weighted in favor of the richest, very much so in one type of assembly, less so in another type, but nevertheless, always weighted. And so um, if you add to that the Senate, a Senate which is something like the um, Spartan Senate in terms of its weight, its influence, its controlling power, but even more so because it contained every ex head of chief official. So they, they had a graded hierarchy of office going right up to consul. Well, if you're an ex-consul, you're automatically in the Senate. And then in order of how long ago you were a consul, you get asked your opinion on a matter first. So the oldest ex-consul first, and then hierarchy, down, down, down. And the Romans had a word for ordinary senators, and it meant foot people, pedi arii, i.e. they never spoke, their views were only important insofar as they had to file through a particular exit and signify yes or no. We have the same system in the House of Commons, it's called division, so you, I, you go into the I lobby or the no lobby, and um, that's not exactly equality, shall we put it that way. Yes, I mean, and that's the Republic. And by the time you get to the Empire, you have another interesting use of the word democratia that you quote in your book by Elias yeah. Aristides, who uh, is yeah. second century AD, I believe, who Boy. writes this encomium to Rome, praise of Rome. And by that. he mentions, yeah. he says, Rome is a perfect democracy under a single ruler. and he presumably said that you know with a straight face in other words well so by democracy then he meant ordered political institution you know as regularly ordered polity um Mm -hmm. governed by or under um in fact what you and i might call a dictator a tyrant almost um but nevertheless a non-responsible um emperor who was above the law formally and there was an enactment in the reign of um, um vespasian which actually put emperors above the other laws that are going around. So, I mean, there's no shame or no um, disguise about the nature of the Roman imperial system. Aelius or Aelius was um, what's called a rhetor, literally an orator, but one who made public speeches for entertainment, but also for getting across political views. So being a Greek, um, therefore a very junior member of the empire, the Greeks were not highly regarded um, or mass by the Romans, and they were thought to be rather feeble and weak, and they'd been rolled over by their the Romans' ancestors, which is why the Roman Empire spread to the Far East in the way it did. So Aelius thought he was doing his people as well, his audience, as well as, of course, the emperor a favour by um, delivering this paean, this hymn of praise, to Rome, which in Greek, it's an irony, means strength. Romi, the Greek word, means strength. <laughs> That's right. So but both of these quotations, the uh, Elias Aristides one and John Malalas one, um, they both exemplify something else that you talked about in your book, which is, I think you, you put it as a calamitous verbal collapse, you know, in the use of the word democracy, that it means yeah. a particular thing in 5th and 4th century Athens, 
which is actually quite direct. I mean, even though the franchise, if you want to put it that way, is quite restricted, only, only male citizens descended from two Athenian parents can participate. If you, if yeah. you are in that charmed circle of citizens, you get a lot of power. You can basically go to the assembly every week. You can get allotted to up to 700 uh, domestic magistracies, etc. And then if we can skip ahead, because we're about to talk about modern stuff as well, <laughs> quick skip ahead quickly, you know, once we get back into the, into the modern, once we get into the modern period, and we, people once again start to think, oh, maybe this whole democracy malarkey isn't such a terrible idea. What you get, though, when they're, when they're building these new republics, like in the, in the United States or after the French Revolution, uh, or in England and Britain as well, um, what they're really moving towards when they're talking about democracy is actually quite different, isn't it? Well, it is. And um, your founding fathers, of course, um, the American founding fathers, very, very openly differentiate their system which they're insistent is a republic and they have a capital and they have a senate they don't have an acropolis and a bully it's not a democracy because and this is mainly madison democracy is in its essence mob rule and um, he said something like even the most ordered body taking decisions in the most regular way according to their rules e.g the death of socrates which was adjudicated by a popular jury court in due process according to athenian standards even that i would call mob rule because he doesn't like the notion of the empowerment of ordinary poor therefore very likely ignorant fickle uh, etc voters and so your system the american system with its electoral college um, was very carefully set up with its presidential form of democracy as opposed to a non-presidential i mean france also has a presidential form we have a funny sort of mixed constitution here but we don't have a president we have a much too powerful prime minister but that's another issue um this is not, this is this explicitly not ancient Greek because, well, look how dreadful, look at the dreadful things they did. And then, of course, the trial and the death of Socrates are called in evidence as prime examples of terrible decisions that mobs make. Right. So, I mean, also, you read Thucydides and you see all these weird things like, you know, they vote to kill the Mytilenians one day and then they vote to spare them the next and they send this big expedition to Sicily. And so, of course, that'll never work. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and then, you know, people like Josh Ober, who is, who is my mentor, have actually, you know, you look at the whole evidence of how Athens is doing in the classical period. And actually, it does fairly well. You know, it's quite strong militarily, even though, of course, like everybody, it loses some battles and it loses some wars. Uh, it's a cultural powerhouse. It's an economic powerhouse. So then you might, you know, and then this is one of the ways in which democracy kind of got back into fashion in the 19th century. Maybe it was a minor contribution, but, you know, Greek historians like George Broke started to sort of make that argument that actually direct democracy isn't completely disastrous if you look at the, the whole array of evidence. So where do you stand on this, Paul, now? I mean, are you a sort of fervent direct Democrat or do you think that everything should be removed <laughs> like, like Madison? You, you're careful to have uh, a mixed constitution or... Uh, you know, what, what, if you ask this question to Luciano Canfra, actually, great Italian Marxist historian, if you could design a democracy now, you had carte blanche like Cleisthenes to design a new constitution, what, what would you do? 
<laughs> that's a really i mean i can't um begin in other words to mm -hmm. sketch to, no no i mean i can't uh fill out uh, uh an entire program in the time that we have it's, an, it's another easy question for you to handle yes you do tend to hurl these um hand grenades at me but um well let me take just one aspect to start with um, two aspects right first of all sortition as against um election and then my second um aspect would be um, political parties or no political parties. So, um, sortition. The ancient Athenians uh, and other Greek Democrats were absolutely insistent that election, though you might say it's open, that it's public, it's potentially transparent and so on, in fact favours the rich, the powerful, the few. So therefore, it's anti. It's not really non-democratic, but election is anti-democratic. It favours the few, rich, and that is uh, the class interpretation of of politics, which was actually a dominant one in in antiquity. And so, there's a very strong modern movement to make sortition both in terms of appointment to office and or appointment to particularly um, uh, particularly appointed for specific let's say you're debating on should we continue to maintain a nuclear deterrent in the uk or should we scrap our nuclear weapons you set up a commission and how do you choose it by sortition or you've got so much public money you're a local councillor and you've been allocated so much from local taxation and central provision how do you spend it as between your local hospital or your local refuse collection or your local schools and where the cases made are absolutely or you know relevantly equal in their impact their persuasive then you simply use the lot you you draw lots to allocate money so the various ways in which sortition can be applied pragmatically in particular situations to enhance or to at any rate facilitate um, decision making on an egalitarian basis however should all we call them mps members of parliament be selected by lot as opposed to by election and that brings one to the second uh, issue that i raised which is um, the question of should there be political parties well for many years i thought that it was very much better to do things the ancient greek way that is on a case-by-case -case basis you vote for uh, an issue not because it's in the party's manifesto but because you happen to think that's the right thing to do because what you get today, look at America, it's absolute classic, total gridlock, just because the other side proposes something. That's enough. No good. Sorry, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. That's not rational deliberation, which is a fundamental part of greasing the wheels of any decent deliberative democracy. On the other hand, on the other hand, suppose you scrap parties altogether and you have still elections of MPs, as opposed to random sortition 
of MPs, then how do you decide between which one to vote for and how do you hold to account any particular member of parliament if they're not in some sense committed to a particular way of proposing or promoting politics? So on balance, I'm afraid to say I don't yet see a viable alternative in our mass, huge mass, you know, millions of voters, not a few thousand, alternative to party-based democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think um, whenever I talk about Sartitian, I mean, the first objection that people make is something like, well, do, would you want the prime minister to be randomly allocated? That sounds crazy. You know, and it does actually sound quite crazy. Um, it's interesting to, to remember, though, that the Athenians didn't allot all of their magistracies. They allotted the vast majority of their magistracies, something like 600 of those 700 domestic magistracies. But as you know, some of the most important office, offices, uh, the ones requiring expertise, particularly the generalship, they were actually elected. So yeah. even though Aristotle says, you know, sortition is a more democratic feature of constitution, uh, constitutions and election is a more aristocratic feature, um, you know, there might be room for both. And so I always wonder, you know, I don't think we should immediately tomorrow start uh, uh, randomly allocating, <laughs> randomly selecting MPs. But, you know, no, in, no. In, in Canada and New Zealand countries like that, there's a big problem with what do you do with the, uh, not New Zealand, New Zealand uh, has a single chamber, but Canada and Britain, uh, what do we do with the upper house, the second chamber? Yeah. Uh, and I wonder whether that, as people have suggested, well, you could have a citizen council. And, and there have been lots of experiments, as you know, with the citizens' assemblies to sort of advise governments on policy and things like that. So I think these ideas are good ones and maybe we can continue to experiment with those. Well, I can pitch in on our upper house, which is an absolute scandal. There are something like eight to 900 members of the House of Lords, most of whom now, they used to be hereditary, most of them though, about 800 or so, are nominated by parties. And that means by the prime minister of the day and the leader of the opposition of the day. And it's an utter scandal because it's a classic case of you buy your peerage, you contribute to a party, and in return, you're given a lordship or a ladyship. And um, do they pitch up? Do they vote? Um, there are all sorts of things that are absolutely dreadful. So the House of Lords in its present form has excellent people. Within it, there's a group called the Crossbench Peers. They're neither this party nor that party. They're crossbench. And they're very often admirable. And they turn up and they sit on committees and they make, you know, and all that. They're working peers. At any rate, the House of Lords, in my opinion, in its present form should be scrapped and you should start again. And one organising principle, it's one the Irish used after they became first a free state and then a republic, that is there are constituencies, so academics, universities, business, um, culture, you know, the different spheres of life get allocated a certain number of positions. And then, yes, it's then competitively, I think they're elected, the House of the Senate in, 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 in Ireland is a competitively elected um, place, as is indeed is the presidency, which is the head of state of the Irish Republic, whereas our head of state, no one elected Queen Elizabeth. But uh, there we are. <laughs> See, look, you're, you're already dividing up the people into sets. You're, you are like Cleisthenes after all. You know, that's one of the things Aristotle says, that you should mix up the people and put them into groups. And 
I think yeah. that was one of the great organizing principles of early democracy as it starts to emerge in the late archaic period, that they're using these sort of civic subdivisions in that way. So, so anyway. I'm, gathering, I'm gathering Pleisten is a bit of your, one of your heroes. He, he's one of mine, but we actually know not nearly enough about him. Yeah. That's right. It's a hard, it's a hard person to, to idolize because, you know, there's kind of a gap there. And we, I mean, we really don't know that he was, he was a convinced Democrat. I mean, of course, Herodotus tells us that he turned to the people because he was getting the worst of it in his battle with his Agoras, you know, his political rivalry. So um, it may be just an interesting case of um, something that scholars of democratization uh, have talked about in, in later ages, which is elites turning to the people in order to further their own interests and then maybe slightly losing control of the whole process or maybe going a bit too far and actually giving power into the hands of the people in a very thorough way, which Kleisteny seems to have done. So, yeah, it's a mystery. Okay, well, anyway, we should probably end there because you've given me an hour and that's generous uh, enough already. So thanks very much. I'll just say in closing that people should definitely buy and read uh, Paul's book. And um, yeah, and we, that was great. We didn't quite, um, we didn't quite uh, design a whole new utopian democracy, but we, we came pretty close to it. So thanks very much uh, for us. <laughs> thanks. For, lovely to see you, James. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you, listeners for, and viewers for, for coming along. I'll just stop the recording.